Hi, everyone. I'm Marcy Kehoe. I'm your co-host of the podcast, but I'm also here as a guest to talk about my project with Carrie Anderson, who's here as well. Um, a little bit about myself. I am a specialist in the Dutch in the world, um, mostly looking at architecture and decorative art. And I currently work at Hope College in Grants Administration. Carrie, could you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Carrie Anderson. I'm an associate professor of art history uh, at Middlebury College in Vermont. I am also a specialist in 17th century Dutch art, but in particular um, Dutch art produced in the context of the Atlantic world. And I will pass it over to Jeffrey. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Heide-Badenhorst. I'm an architect in the field of historic preservation. Um, I was part of the 2016, uh, 2017 Good Hope exhibition at the Rijksmuseum about Dutch-South African relationships. That's where I started developing the digital collection website for colonial furniture and silver. And currently I work as an independent scholar researching the architecture and interiors of Dutch colonial Batavia, which is now Jakarta. I thought we could talk a little bit about the digital projects we've been engaged with and that we wanted to highlight today. First off, um, Carrie and I are working on a project about the Dutch textile trade. Um, so we're working with textiles moving in the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean primarily in the Dutch world. And our aim is to map this um, digitally um, and also provide access to the data and data visualizations about that. Um, and we've been lucky enough to be supported by a grant from the Delmas Foundation that the Journal of Historians of Netherlandish Art was kind enough to work with us on. So we're really excited that hopefully we'll be able to launch a website by the end of this year. I would also add that in the past year um, that we again were fortunate to have a grant by the Crest, which has enabled us to hire a doctoral student to help us with the transcription and translation of the Dutch archives that we're working with in The Hague. So we are building our data set primarily from East and West India Company cargo lists um, that we're compiling. So this is obviously an enormous amount of data and we've been very grateful to have the help of uh, Talita Scapers who is helping us to um, transcribe all of these data. So all of us are working on digital projects. Um, and so I think it's kind of interesting to see some intersections in the, the work that we do. But also, I kind of want to start off by asking Jeffrey, why is it that you started with a digital approach to the, um, the furniture project? Um, the objects are quite dispersed. So we're talking about a colonial heritage, which means that part of collections are um, in the place that they were created either Indonesia, South Africa, um, or the Antilles or, or wherever. And part of the objects are in Dutch collections. So bringing them together in one place would never be possible and it wouldn't do justice to the complex history that those objects actually have. So by digitally bringing them together, we can um, enable more people to study them and they can be studied in, in, in a cohesive context. The one issue with the collections is that they're not always visible. They're not always shown in museums. Um, so bringing them together digitally will enable people in other countries as well to study these objects, which is part of their history too. So that's the main reason. Um, and I think a lot of the information on the objects itself can be more accurate. You see similar items in, in various collections with completely different dating and a completely different background story. So if you can put these objects side by side, 
you'll be able to provide more accurate data and, and it, it'll give a better picture of the actual history of the objects itself. Yeah, that's something that Carrie and I've also been thinking about because part of our project is bringing the data about textiles together with um, examples of pieces of textile that exist in the material world today and also visual culture of people wearing textiles or interacting with textiles in some way. And similarly, these are dispersed throughout all different collections. Um, we have watch books that are in archives, and these are delicate things that can't be, you know, put, can't really be put on display. So to put them exposed to light and air um, would be a problem. But if we can make a good digital photograph, we can share it in a kind of facsimile way that hopefully allows more interaction with it. And I would, I would also add that being able to manipulate these data by sort of grouping them in certain categories, price, for example, or by certain colors or textures or patterns, um, sometimes that's the only way that you can make meaning from it. So the linear format of print, when you're looking at huge data sets, is sometimes just completely it's really hard to get a sense of what these data mean if they're in a linear format, but if you can pull out the data that you'd like to look at, it becomes more meaningful. And I also think that you want to put out your best items in a museum or at an exhibition, and that doesn't always represent the complexity of the textile trade or the making of furniture. So you want to create that perspective, that horizon, of all the different types of textiles that were created, which wasn't only the ones with gold thread or wasn't only the ebony furniture. So it's, I think making a digital database, you're able to show objects that might not be aesthetically as pleasing as other objects, but that's, that's not the point. The point is that you really get an image of, of the diversity of objects that were present in those days. That's a great point. And we certainly, we come across a lot of textile types, some of which we still don't know exactly what, what they are, um, but we do have some data points that help us to fill that out a little bit, such as price. So we could find out whether or not something was valued within a particular geography based on its price, for example, if it's a low price or a high price, even if we don't know exactly what that textile may have looked like. Yeah, I think with furnishings also, you probably have the same challenge that we have that the less expensive and more used utilitarian textiles, and there's certainly utilitarian furnitures as well, they've been worn out and they don't exist anymore. So how to, how to get at that more diverse history of a diverser kind of object um, than, than you can when working with, like you said, the best, the best objects that are in a collection that are on display. Jeffrey, can I ask you what has been sort of the most challenging thing with your project in particular? Is it finding the examples to include? Is it, you know, what, what has been the most challenging part of it? I think the main complexity is for people to see the importance of these objects as part of Dutch history and Dutch culture. These objects weren't made on in the Netherlands on, on Dutch soil, and the colonies are often seen as sort of the periphery of Dutch culture. Whatever happened in the Indies was either a copy of what people were doing in Europe or it was inferior to the objects that were made in the Netherlands too. So we sometimes miss the point of those objects kind of being predecessors to what happened in, in the Netherlands and um, for people to see the importance of those objects as symbols of that interconnected history um, 
I think museums often have other priorities as well. Institutions are focused on other things. So finding people to collaborate and, and to see why you are doing this, the convincing part is sometimes the most difficult, I feel. I remember when the Rijksmuseum was closed for so long and they had that smaller kind of temporary exhibit, there was a crib that was, I'm picturing something with inlaid different color woods and maybe mother of pearl in it that was kind of like a central piece. And I, I remember going to see that and thinking, oh, this is interesting that it made it into kind of the highlights collection because it's, it's so big and takes up space in an awkward way when you don't have a lot of space to work with. And I was kind of impressed. It seemed like it was highlighted in that gallery. Um, and I think the objects furniture has also historically had a bit of an odd position, um, was either in ethnographic museums, there's not really, hasn't really been a uh, collecting policy in, in a lot of museums. So some museums have purchased objects during the years, but it hasn't been an active policy of collecting those items. So I think we hardly have anything from the Antilles or from South Africa in any Dutch museum collection that I know of. I, I wonder um, if, taking a digital approach to these materials is kind of necessitated by the fact that these are dispersed colonial objects and items. Um, so they're, they cover a lot of space. They're not held in kind of centralized collections. And by putting together a digital database, you're kind of bringing those objects together in a way that they can't necessarily be brought together um, otherwise. But also um, something Carrie said earlier about being able to reorganize um, the information when it's um, presented digitally allows kind of different narratives to come out or different um, stories to, to kind of organize the object. So something that, that stands out to me is that all of these objects have various ways of approaching them. So a, a chair may be Antillean and it may be Dutch at the same time. So how, how do you represent both of those geographies or cultures or approaches simultaneously or alternating? Um, it's, it's, it's a real challenge, I think, with, with colonial material. And I think it, it shows the complexity of, of history itself that it doesn't, it's not always binary. It doesn't have to be Antillean or Dutch. It, it can actually be both at the same time. I think we're often used to just putting things in certain brackets and saying, this is this. And I mean, it's easier to describe things in those ways, it's easier to comprehend, but what if it wasn't that simple and straightforward? And, and what if there were these multiple layers of complexity? And, and yeah, I think, I think it's important to address those. And I think the decorative arts and applied arts really have a role in that story. Um, I think there's a lot of objects in museums that or in collections or wherever that can be described in a different way um, where we can explain the counter narrative. Uh, thinking of one uh, beautiful cabinet in the Rijksmuseum collection, the um, Domer cabinet with tulips on it. It's made around 1635, 1645, uh, made of ebony. And, and when you read the description, it says ebony was widely available because of VOC because of the East India Company. But when you look at what was actually happening in the places where that material came from, um, which was probably in that case Mauritius, there was deforestation that took place on those islands. So yes, this is a beautiful uh, work of art, undeniably, but there is the other side to that object. And, and I think looking at objects uh, in digital collections, you can kind of see the movement of materials, you can see the movement of people, 
and it visualizes it way better than it can be done in any other way. I would also say that sometimes I find that as much of a proponent I am of digital projects, it's complicated sometimes with a data-driven project because you have to categorize data in ways that can be complex and challenging, right? You, In order for a computer to be able to engage with a data set in an Excel spreadsheet, it has to have a category and it has to be one thing or the other. And it is sometimes hard to find, you know, the sort of messier category that is so much a part of humanistic data, right? I mean, it's not neat and it can't always be categorized. And I find, I find personally challenged by being in some ways forced to categorize textiles or furniture or objects in a way that can be read by uh, with computational methods, but uh, that also maintains the same messiness of humanistic data. And I, I don't know, Marsley, you probably have more to say on this as well. This is something that we constantly communicate about. Well, what should this be? Should it be this category or this category? Yeah, I was working on our issue of small versus narrow <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> like, what what is the difference? Yeah, so, so in the data that we're working with, um, we have historic data that is uh, written in the historic context um, that meant something to that individual writing who was some, you know, notary or, or scribe or something who then was bringing his own mindset to the project, um, but also his mindset of being like, you know, in my case, an employee of the VOC. So when that person uses a term, what what do they mean by it? And would they use the same term as a coworker in the next office over? I don't know. So then translating it three to 400 years later, what are the categories that are meaningful to us? Can we replicate the categories that existed historically, but also make it meaningful? It's really challenging, especially like the geographic problem. So um, this is something we struggle with a lot is preserving the archival name for a place, which is the colonial name, but then updating it to modern names so that we can kind of decolonize the information, but at the same time, not reify the information. It gets, it gets so complicated and messy, even just trying to figure out, because we, we have, sometimes we have information about a specific port, and sometimes we just have a region, and the region can be something like Persia. So is Persia Iran? Is that a fair equivalent? probably not quite. So trying to, to work around those things and both capture them as historians, but also move on to something that can work for us today is a real, a real challenge. And we run into really complicated problems. I would say it's probably similar with furniture as well. As the East India Company moved people, enslaved people from the East Coast of India to Batavia to make furniture there, um, the lines get really blurry. You don't always know if something was made in India or was made in Indonesia. You have similar issues there where it's not always clear what the origin of, of the piece is. And yeah. It's difficult to determine how to yeah, put a tag on it. And I think it, it's, it's meaningful to people today to be represented well in this material. So I think we have a responsibility to do it thoughtfully, but it also is so hard and challenging. Yeah, those descriptions aren't always... Uh, very telling. It's not always helpful, those inventories. But yeah. Well, and also what you, you said before about how a catalog at one museum is going to not mesh with a catalog at another museum. So just the, um, the vocabulary that one catalog uses is not going to be 
transferable necessarily. And everybody individually is cleaning up their data and categorizing things, but at a certain point it becomes like not, not very helpful. Something that Carrie and I have on our plates is figuring out good vocabulary for working with these historic textiles. Hopefully that will be well-informed with other research that is done by other scholars and also hopefully useful to them because it would be nice if there was interoperable terminologies. But it is very interesting how you get kind of bogged down in strange problems you didn't expect to get in Mm -hmm. when you started an art history degree. Well, I have students this afternoon, so just as a little background, um, I'm teaching a course this winter term in which students are using our textile data in order to create different data visualizations and interactive web applications, um, which has been incredibly helpful for our project. And so this afternoon, they're going to get the first look at data that uh, Marsley and I and Talita have all transcribed separately and has been for the first time brought together in one data set. And I'm really interested to see what uh, problems they will find because they will find many. And it, you know, it makes me think of the 18th century notaries who would each you know, uh, record information differently, either, either leaving things out or adding things in um, that somebody else might do differently. And so I think that um, we, as, as standardized as we try to make our data collecting practices, we're three different people transcribing three you know different sets of data so it it should be interesting how it all plays out and the wonderful thing i find about your project is that it really recontextualizes a lot of the material it really shows you how these objects or these these fabrics were used and and if they were worn or if they were furnishing or and it shows how interconnected these histories are that uh, i think i remember some bakeman images where people were wearing them in, in Indonesia, and then there's an interior, I don't know if it's Peter de Hoog or whoever, um, but it, it really shows that this was a globalizing world. On the one side of the world, people might have been wearing exactly the same fabric as, as on the other side of the world. And I think that's wonderful that things can live in different places at the same time. So things influenced people all over the world. I think that's very powerful. How do you capture different um, uh, artisans who might be working on the furniture from different locations? Or you must be running into that uh, a fair amount. It gets a bit murky sometimes because Tamils were taken from the east coast of India to Sri Lanka and people were taken from the um, east coast of India to Batavia. So it's not always easy to describe exactly what the origin is. Um, but by bringing things together digitally, I think those things will be easier in future and, and that will shed more light on it and will enable you to make more conclusive decisions. There's a scholar who's working on historic photographs and she was looking at the language that's used to describe the subjects in the photographs. And so um, I think she was looking at anonymous man and wanted to um, have us rethink the word anonymous for that individual and say something that kind of captured the fact that this person is currently unknown, but could be known so that it puts the responsibility on the um, archivist or whoever's cataloging that image. And I thought that was a really interesting approach to, to dealing with the fact that you, you have real people making these objects, but their identity may, may not be known. Um, 
probably getting getting to the level of an individual's name is going to be impossible with the historic distance that we have, but possibly getting at the culture that they came from or the region that they came from might be there. Um, but it's it's really interesting to think through how how you even catalog something like that. Um, I've seen some catalogs that just say, you know, Indian in American context is really confusing because there's multiple ways that that word means and that covers a lot of geography. But how to kind of get at at all of the questions that are kind of remaining about our objects, who made them, when were they made, what are they made of, um, and how to indicate that uncertainty in a way that's productive rather than seeming like we just don't know what we're doing. And then yeah. how to communicate that in a narrative that is, you know, meaningful as well, right? It's about, I think, capturing all of this information and then putting it out there in a way that responsibly generates meaning and is available, accessible, and open to people who want to access it. And I think it's important to give that agency to those people. Um, I think the Rights Museum had a silver box in the slavery exhibition, which was made by an enslaved craftsman. And a lot of the furniture in the Cape, especially at the end of the 18th century, was made by enslaved people. And they were skilled craftsmen. They, they knew how to do things. And, and I think it's important to address that fact as well. These were individuals that uh, contributed to society and to culture. In Carries and my project, what we're hoping is that the data will somehow illuminate more than we've been able to access um, through the material and the visual um, data that we have. Um, so one way where we're trying to kind of see beyond the research that exists so far in a way that the data might be useful is with the example of what's called guinea cloth in our data, which of course it's, it's something that's discussed a lot in secondary literature about the slave trade um, and about textiles that are circulating in Africa, but it's made in India um, and it's, it's interestingly called guinea cloth. So I think there's what we've seen so far um, from looking into our data that this, this material called Guinea cloth is moving to the Guinea coast of Africa, as it was called at that, uh, at that time. Um, so the narrative of this being a, a, a textile that's entangled in the slave trade is very much seen in our data. Um, but something that's not seen in the secondary literature on this, this kind of textile is that Guinea cloth moved all throughout the entire um, Dutch trading world. So we see a lot of it going to the Netherlands and staying there. Um, we also see it moving around to different ports in Indonesia. We also see it described in secondary literature as blue and white, but in our data, sometimes it's described as white. Um, so it could look like anything. So what we've discovered in that example is that there's there's a lot more questions um, than than existed currently in the, the research on this. Of course, just recently, we've even seen entries for chintz printed on guineas. So we have a new, a new level of our, our lack of understanding or our assumptions about what guinea cloth was that turned out to be um, not quite what we thought. I think it's, it's a fascinating history. And a question to you is, is, was this connected to the laws of which people could wear which kind of fabrics or how does it play into that narrative? That's a great question. Because <laughs> um, one of the places where we've seen scholars engaging with, with multiple of, of these textiles is in the question of sumptuary laws and also yeah, requirements about who can wear what. Um, so some of the 
textiles that we've seen as de- described as inexpensive or cheap are relegated to uh, enslaved people or also to orphans. Um, there's a really interesting article about sail clothing by um, Mickey Sugiaro. But this this is a really interesting place for trying to understand these textiles that are not, you know, the beautiful chintz bedspreads that we see in museums. Um, but we're, we're able to get at some of those more, more common experience textiles in that way. Um, but at the same time, those sumptuary laws are so difficult to work with because if something's outlawed, that means it's because someone's doing it. So it, it, it's, it's always hard to say, like, what is the actual practice that's, that is existing versus the laws about about it. I would say in in terms of sort of broad category of blue and white textiles, which could include um, textiles like guineas, there are assumptions about, and not necessarily people who are forced to wear them, although it seems like that in certain circumstances in Indonesia, for example, where former slaves um, are wearing Nikanese, which is also blue and white striped, um, but also in other parts of the world as well. And then European perceptions of, you know, who wears a certain type of cloth. And of course, all of this, you know, secondary evidence we need to take with a grain of salt, because many of these observations come from armchair travelers who have never even been to these places in which they're describing, oh, all the people in Africa wearing blue and white cloths. So, I mean, one of the things to go back to your question that we're hoping to uncover is, you know, first, are these observations correct? Are there an inordinate number of blue and white cloths, for example, circulating in certain regions? And, you know, not only how are they meaningful to Europeans, but how are they meaningful um, to the communities in which they're circulating, right? So the, there's a reason, of course, that in the West India Company side, as well as the East India Company side, Dutch mer- merchants are pretty savvy as to what is going to sell where. But if we just look at it from the Dutch perspective, that's really only half of the story, right? So what do these textiles mean within the context of the communities in which they're circulating? Why are they important? Um, are they are they something that is acquired as a means of demonstrating a certain social position within the society in which they're circulating? Um, or are there other meanings attached to these clause, ones that are completely distinct from the ones that Europeans are assigning to them? And so this is, I think, one of the main questions that Marcy and I are trying to get at with these data. How do these textiles mean, not just in the context of uh, European thought, um, but within the context of the communities in which the textiles are circulating? There's such an interesting problem with imitation as well. So, and I think that's something you run into with the furnishings is if something is an imitation of another thing, which culture does it belong to? it It gets messy. And, and then with textiles, I can imagine that sometimes someone would send a silk or brocade textile, which would be copied in shins, which might have been might be embroidered in China in a different way. So you've also got this change in in the medium that is used when the imagery is, is similar or related. Or a lot of the ebony furniture is related in design to the shinses that were made, and you really see those flowers that that look very naturalistic develop into some other creation that you can't really tell which flower was actually used as inspiration. But it's this, I think that's a fascinating part. Um, 
where things just develop into something something new. Like you can't always see the the origin anymore. Just this ongoing process of um, yeah recreation, which is interesting. Thank you, Geoffrey Badenhorst, Carrie Anderson, and of course, my co-host, Marcely Kehoe. Next episode, we welcome Alexa McCarthy, who has recently delivered her PhD to the University of St. Andrews, and she will be talking on its topic, Blue Paper, with Yvonne Bleierveld of the RKD Netherlands Institute for Art History. It will be another fascinating episode, so I hope to see you next time.